Well, good morning. You know, in churches all across America, there seems to be always an issue when pastor is out of town. And I think we've got it licked here at New Hope, because now when people know that pastor's out of town, people call Becky and they say, hey, who's preaching Sunday? Oh, Todd is. And people still show up. So I think that's great. But no, seriously, I, uh, there's no greater honor than uh, speaking up here from the pulpit. And there's no greater honor than dismissing the kids to children's church either. <laughs> so you may go. But uh, no, this is something that it, those who were here last time I spoke um, heard me say, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it the next time I speak. It, there's no greater honor than being up here speaking on behalf of God. It's just such an honor. Some people um, may take it for granted, but that's something that, that I take very seriously. And as I spoke before, as much of an opportunity as I have to speak truth to somebody up here, and, and hopefully God would use that truth to change somebody's life, I have that same opportunity to destroy somebody's life by not speaking the truth of what God's standards are. So, something that I take very seriously. What we're going to talk about today is, there's two topics I believe in churches that people just cringe when they hear that we're going to talk about it. The first one is money, tithing, and the second one is evangelism. And we're going to talk about evangelism today, and the title of the message is Evangelism, Whose Job Is It? When you hear the word evangelism, what's the first thing that, that pops into your head? Door to door? Feel free. What was it? TV. How about fear? When you hear that, you know, we're going to go evangelize, fear pops up into our minds. How about, I can't do that. How about it's the pastor's job, not mine, to evangelize people? Have we ever heard about that? Have we ever thought that way? I think fear is probably a, uh, a common theme when people hear the word evangelism. You know, pastor's been talking about uh, throwing seeds, scattering seeds, preaching the word, sharing our faith for quite some time now. And we're going to follow up on that. I know even in uh, men's Bible study today, Steve was talking about that. And some of the, the passages of scripture that he used, we're gonna, you're going to hear them again today from the pulpit. But the, the first point that I want to make is, as Christians, we have been born again to reproduce reproduce our faith, reproduce what we believe, reproduce what God wants us to be, and that is our duty and our obligation. And we've got two passages of Scripture that we're going to read from that have everything to do with that. The first one is in Matthew 28. That's verses 18 through 20. Give me an amen when you get there. All right. Verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if we just even start in verse 18, All authority has been given to me. 
Christ is speaking here. All the authority that God has placed upon Jesus Christ has been given to him. And he's telling us that we need to go. The key ver- or word in verse 19 is go. We can't evangelize from sitting in the pews of church. We have to evangelize by going out somewhere, whether it's our workplace, whether it's a sporting event, whether it's Jesus said ministry, wherever we're at, at the grocery store, we can evangelize. But before you sit there and think, well, you know what, there's no way I'm going to evangelize in a grocery store. Let's get through the message and hopefully maybe that thought process will change when you learn a couple different ways that we can do this. See, what evangelism is not is that guy on the street corner screaming, repent or go to hell. That's his, his method, not one that I personally condone, um, but we're going to talk about that also. So if you have a preconceived notion of what evangelism looks like in your head, I would just ask that you could set that aside just for about the next 30 to 40 minutes. Second passage of scripture that talks about this, we'll find in the book of Mark, chapter 16, verse 15. This is Jesus speaking again. It says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Where is the world? When he said, Go into the world, what is the world? The world is Riverside Drive. The world is the city of Akron. The world is the county of Summit, the state of Ohio. You get the picture. But he's talking about go into all the world. He's telling us to go wherever we go is your world. And that's where we need to share our faith from. The sobering reality is most Christians don't share their faith. Most Christians would rather come to church, sing the songs, and not tell anybody about anything that they believe. And that's, that's sad because... The rules have been set. We just read the two rules. Jesus spoke them to us. He says to go therefore. He said to go and preach the word. Now you don't have to be a preacher to preach the word. But that's the sad part. The majority of folks don't share their faith. But we have different reasons why I believe we don't share our faith. And tell me, if, if you're not one in here that actively shares your faith, I would just uh, see where you slot yourself in these categories. How about fear of rejection? I'll lose their friendship. They'll think I'm a nut. I may lose my job. Fear of rejection for sharing your faith. Or now, are any of these reasons I'm going to give you valid? To God, they're probably not. I think we can justify a lot of them in our heads, but I don't believe that that God tells us that we should fear. How many times does the word fear not show up in Scripture? A bunch. Jesus said here, I am with you always. If you have Jesus in your corner, why do we need to fear? How about this one? It's easier not to bother. It takes too much time. I don't get the results. How about that? Is that something that that sticks in our head? You know, I don't get results. I'm doing something wrong. I don't get results. Just easier not to bother. I think that's something common also. I believe that when we have that mindset, that's going to deter us from the opportunity. And we can tell our, share our faith when that door opens. When somebody says something to you as, uh, hey, Ronnie, what are you doing this weekend? 
Oh, man, we got a men's breakfast on Saturday at church, and obviously Sunday I'll be at church. The door was open. Ronnie stepped through. That's what evangelism looks like. How about this one? I, and I think this is probably the most overlooked reason why we share or don't share our faith, and that's to leave Satan himself. The tempter does not want us to share our faith. The tempter is happy with us going to church on Sunday and nothing else during the week. The, the Satan is happy when we don't share our faith. Satan will put those lines in our head that say, you're a hypocrite. You did this. How can you talk to them about Christ? When we realize that, that Satan has no influence in our lives other than what we allow, then we can share our faith. How about this one? False ideas of responsibility. It's not my job. Anybody hear that at work and just makes you cringe? I believe that God has the same cringing feeling when somebody says, evangelism, that's not my job. Yes, it is. It's all of our job. How about, that's not my gift. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, you may not have the gift to be called an evangelist, but you do have the gift of evangelism. How about this one? That's what we pay the pastor for. <laughs> Ever heard that? I have. That's what we pay the pastor for. It's his job to go preach it. I'm supposed to listen to him while he preaches it, but it's his job. That's what we pay him for to go and do it. Not true. One more. How about fear of answering the tough questions? How about, well, what if they asked me this? How would I respond? If you have fear of the question that's going to be asked you while you're evangelizing, you need to get in the Word a little bit more. Because the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is very simple. And if we have difficulty sharing that because we don't know the words that we're going to speak, if somebody would ask a certain question, I've never witnessed anybody and they said, well, tell me about the Mosaic Law. Never happened. It never will happen. But they do say, Well, you say that he died on the cross for me. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He loved us. That's the gospel. That's what we need to share. So the fear of how to handle the tough questions is not a valid argument either. If that is our fear, again, we need to dig into the Word a little bit more. We need to read the Romans Road that talks about salvation. And when we do that, we will be a little bit more comfortable. How about because of past failures? I tried that once before and it blew up bad on me. I'm not doing that ever again. Has that happened? When you get that guy that is stronger in his, his faith of, of Muslim or whatever it would be, whether he's even a believer or not. If that person has a stronger, more dominant personality, and you go up to witness to him, and he absolutely crushes you, should that be defeat on your part? No, you just move on to the next. Consider that a loss and move on. See, because we are going to encounter people that, that don't want to hear what we have to say. We are going to encounter people that are much more smarter than we are. But we have a way around that, and you're going to learn that today. How about this one here? That person is just way too far gone. There is no way he is coming to Jesus Christ. I'm not even going to bother. Let hell have him. Not the right answer either. 
Because when we do that, we severely put limits on what God is capable of doing in that person's lives. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. When we put God's limits or limits on what God can do, what have we said? That our God is, is not greater. Our God is not stronger. When we put those limits on what God is capable of doing in our lives, we put him in a box. And God wasn't built to be put into a box. God is much greater than we are. So when we put limits on God, we're cheating somebody out of an opportunity. I've got an article here I'd like to read you, and it's just a little lengthy, so if you just do me the honors. This one's titled, The Horror Begins. Eventually, I crossed that invisible line of no return. After years of mental torment, behavioral problems, deep inner struggles, and my own rebellious ways, I became the criminal that at that time it seemed as if it was my destiny to become. Looking back, it was all a horrible nightmare, and I would do everything, anything I could to undo everything that happened. Six people lost their lives. Many others suffered at my hand and will continue to suffer for a lifetime. I am so sorry for that. In 1978, I was sentenced to about 365 consecutive years, virtually burying me alive behind prison walls. When I first entered the prison system, I was placed in isolation. I was then sent to a psychiatric hospital because I was declared temporarily insane. Eventually, I was sent to other prisons, including the infamous Attica. As with many inmates, life in prison is a struggle. I've had my share of problems, hassles, and fights. At one time, I almost lost my life when another inmate cut my throat. Yet all through this, and I did not realize it until later, God had his loving hands on me. Ten years into my prison sentence and feeling despondent and without hope, another inmate came up to me one day as I was walking the prison yard on a cold winter's night. He introduced himself and began to tell me that Jesus Christ loved me and wanted to forgive me. Although I knew he meant well, I mocked him because I did not think that God would ever forgive me or that he would want anything to do with me. Still, this man persisted, and we became friends. His name was Rick. We would walk the yard together. Little by little, he would share with me about his life and what he believed Jesus had done for him. He kept reminding me that no matter what a person did, Christ stood ready to forgive if that individual would be willing to turn from the bad things they were doing and would put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross by dying for our sins. He gave me a Gideon's pocket testament and asked me to read the Psalms. I did. Every night I would read from them. And it was at this time when the Lord was quietly melting my stone-cold heart. One night I was reading Psalm 34. came upon the sixth verse that said, The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. It was at that moment in 1987 that I began to pour out my heart to God. Everything seemed to hit me at once. The guilt from what I did, the disgust at what I had become. Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and began to cry out to Jesus Christ. I told him that I was sick and tired of doing evil. I asked Jesus to forgive me for all my sins. I spent a good while on my knees praying to him. When I got up, it felt as if a very heavy but invisible chain that had been around me for so many years was broken. A peace flooded over me. I did not understand what was happening, but in my heart I just knew that my life somehow was going to be different. I was born again. When we put limits on God, people like this 
would never come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Anybody know who that was? Anybody know David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer back in 1977? Young folks probably don't know it, but I'd tell you, Google son of Sam, and you'll get the man's history. Through a year span in New York City, he killed six people, he shot seven other people, and he had a couple of nicknames, the son of Sam, the 44 caliber killer, and he had panic all over because his victims were random. They were all um, just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if you're old enough to remember that, and, and I vaguely remember that because I was, you know, 12, 12, 13 years old at the time when mom and dad would talk about that. And as kids, we got to thinking, man, I'm not going outside. He might be out there. And imagine the, the panic that was. Somebody put a value on this guy's life. Guy in the, in, the, in the prison named Rick who shared his faith with this guy. Now son of Sam, David Berkowitz, who was a murderer, a very evil man, now is a child of the Most High God. So when we put limits on what God can do, people aren't going to get saved. I think we could all probably have an opportunity to say somebody that, that we have thought of during this story that I was reading that, you know, maybe they haven't killed people, but, you know, they're into this, this, and this. I may not be able to witness to them. Why not? Why not? There are a couple different ways that we can share our faith. If you're a structure, a program kind of person, uh, there's one called Way of the Master. It's done by Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron. I think that's probably the most recent one that's been going on. Uh, there's another one out there called Share Jesus Without Fear by a fellow named Bill Fay. And it's a whole program that tells you, if you're a structured kind of person, of this is what I need to do, I need this scripture, I need this, this, and you can go through the lineup. There's one by D. James Kennedy called Evangelism Explosion, which is basically the same thing. It's a formatted version of how to share your faith. And there's also, in these, they give you the, the passage of scripture. The uh, Share Jesus Without Fear, he will actually, in, in their little kit that they have, they'll give you a New Testament to stick in your pocket. And he tells you to highlight it. And then you can just go from page to page if you're a structure kind of person. I'm not much on structure when it comes to stuff like that. Um, I am a believer that you need to be led by the Holy Spirit when you're talking to people. Um, but if you are that kind of a person, if you are somebody that needs structure, you need you know, a syllabus, so to speak, I would definitely recommend one of those. But here are some biblical methods. These are some ways that people in the Bible would share their faith and see how you relate to one of these. How about the confrontational? We talked about that, the guy with the sign. Uh, Peter was like this. I believe that Peter was a very confrontational. And if you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we'll start in. And listen to this. If you read the first part of, of chapter 2, you'll see that they're setting it up where there was all sorts of people. There was, there was confusion. There was people that they, they were hearing things. They were hearing winds. They were, they were hearing voices that uh, everybody was talking. And it, it seemed that the, the person that was talking, everybody was understanding their own language. And there was, there was kind of confusion. People thought that those folks were drunk. Listen to what Peter said in verse 14. He said, but Peter standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, raised his voice being a key word there, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now if you read 17 through 21, 
very powerful, powerful preaching he's doing there. And it's coming straight from the, the book of Joel chapter 2. And it says, It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants, men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is God speaking. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that sound like a confrontational preacher? Uh, one of the, the, the older hellfire and brimstone type preachers? A couple of things about that. The positive to, to preaching that way is some people are pretty hard-headed. Some people, that's what it takes for them to get the word of somebody in their face, sticking their finger at them and saying, you are going to hell. You need to do something about it. Some people respond to that. A lot of people don't. The negatives to that kind of evangelism is people are going to see it as abrasive and unloving. And it may turn a whole lot of people off. How about Paul? I believe that Paul was the intellectual type when it came to spe him speaking. Now, the nice part about the intellectual type is there are a whole lot of people that need facts. I need to see it. Well, I need the proof. The proof is you. The proof is me. The proof is my testimony. When you get the, the negative um, side of that, people want to debate. You know, the intellectual guy said, well, you know that this passage of Scripture contradicts this passage of Scripture. Well, you know what? I'm not going to get into that with you now because I'm not going to debate you on this. Here's what I know. I was a miserable wreck and alcoholic, and God saved me. What more proof do you need than that? That's where the proof is. How about this type of a, of a preacher? How about the, the testimonial? Two chapters, or two examples for that. First one is the woman of the well in John chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. And if you know this story, when the woman had the, had the encounter with Jesus, Jesus told her before he knew her about the stuff going on in her life. When Jesus said, you know, go tell your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't. You've had five. And the one you're with now isn't your husband. Jesus was telling her everything she did. And what did she do? She went back in and said, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Her testimony. Look, guys, I just met Jesus Christ. Testimony. Can't argue that. That's her story. You cannot argue the fact that she had that encounter with Jesus Christ. How about this one? In John chapter 9, verse 11, the man that was healed of blindness. Remember that story? Listen to this. Chapter 9, verse 11. He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. 
People said, isn't that the beggar that was out there looking for money every day? And it's like, yeah, he was. He met Jesus. His testimony of what Jesus told him to do. Can't argue that. Cannot argue the fact of what happened. Because the man lived it. The positives to that is it'll give a real glimpse into the power of God by people hearing your testimony of what you came from, what you, God brought you out of. Now, the negative to that side is some people may not be able to relate to where you came from. Again, my background is, is an alcoholic. If I'm telling people about that that's never touched a drink in their lives, very difficult for them to understand my thought process through that. I can tell them that what God did for me, how he brought me out of the, out of the pit, but they may not be able to realize that either. So be careful with that one. How about this one? Very easy one here. John chapter 1, verse 46. How about the inviter? When you invite somebody somewhere, you don't have to be bold. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You can just invite them to wherever you're headed. John chapter 1, verse 46. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come, come and see. Philip was an inviter. How much effort did that say? Well, come and see. You know, let's use the example of... Uh, the, the men's breakfast or the women of hope, you know, thing. How how much boldness does it take to say, Becky, Thursday night we're having Bible study church. You want to come? Ronnie, we're having a men's breakfast on Saturday morning. You like to eat? Yeah. You want to come? It doesn't take a whole lot in there. See, the key is getting people to church. People that come into the doors, once they get in here, let the Holy Spirit take over. The trouble that we have is getting people to come to church. Young folks, you got your, your youth program on Wednesday night. Grab some kid from the neighborhood said, you got to come see this. How much effort does that take? And if they say no, all right, maybe next time. What are you doing? You're inviting somebody to come to something that's very important to you. And once they get here, then the Holy Spirit can, can work. The key is getting them here. How about this type? The relational evangelism. Bar none, the number one way people come to Christ is through relationships. By a show of hands, how many people did not grow up in a church home that somebody or something in your past brought you to Jesus Christ? Look at the hands that went up. A co-worker led me to mine, not by anything that he said to me, but the way he carried himself. And he invited me to a church service one day, and here I am today. He became that inviter because he knew that I was on a road to destruction. He knew I didn't have Jesus and I needed him. So he went, went so bold and he said, hey, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? My older brother, he uh, did not have anything to do with church, didn't want anything to do with church. And I invited him to something that was happened to be very special at a church. And he came. And he made a comment of, oh, that wasn't so bad. And I said, well, you ought to come hear me preach one day. And he goes, you know what, I will. He got saved about three months later. Amen. wasn't anything I did. I invited him. He showed up. Holy Spirit took over from there. 
That's all we need to do. So the relationship thing, it brings more people into the family of God than anything else. When you have that relationship, be you, though. Don't try to be somebody else. Be yourself. Tell your story. If this person happens to be somebody that you grew up with that that used to hang out in the bars, tell your story. Man, do you guys remember when we used to do this? And we'd be laying in the backseat of the pickup truck because we were too drunk to drive? Yeah, let me tell you about what God did for me. Tell your story. Be you. Don't try to be anything else. Don't try to be Pastor Todd. We have our own inner circle of people that we can connect with when we have that relationship built on there. We need to be real. It's more personal, and it's within reach with people. And the last type thing I'm going to do is it's really, this one's even easier than the, uh, the inviter. No, you're walking down the street. Didn't take a whole lot of guts, did it? Forgot some people over here. Didn't take a whole lot of effort to carry a pocket full of tracks, walk out and give them to people. See, when we see evangelism and when we think evangelism, we overcomplicate it. How difficult was that? Didn't say a word, did I? Got the word of God into people's hands. It just happens to look like a million-dollar bill. Okay. You don't like the money end of it. Try these. This is really going to... You need that one, brother. (laughs) The front of the card says, warning, do not read this card. It will offend you. What does, what does our natural instinct say? Oh, cool, what's it say? <laughs> we laugh at this, but it's so simple. Some people don't like the track end of it. I am a personal believer because I may not have contact with you anymore. See these little cards here? This one says thanks. This is great to give to servers with your tip. As long as you give a good tip, if you're going to give a bad tip, do not leave a, a, a track on the table because <laughs> we're laughing. But it, it put, puts you in a horrible light. Why would people want to see somebody or come to know the Jesus that you serve when you only give 4% tip? So we're laughing at it, but I'm dead serious about it. If you're going to leave a track at a table for a server, do not cheap the tip because you have painted yourself in a horrible light. But these little cards here are so cool that... These fit wonderfully right inside the handles of 12 packs of beer. I have done that, asked my wife, as we would go into stores and we would walk down the beer aisle and we would put this right in the handle. Now we're laughing about that, but who knows that guy that said, you know what, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to go get drunk. I'm going to off myself. And he sees this. What is this? Somebody... Somebody loves me? You never know the impact that you're going to have. So get yourself a bunch of tracks. Hand them out. When you go to the, to the gas station, hey, when you get a break, check this out. You never know who you're going to touch. Because Isaiah, the book of Isaiah 53, verse 11, says that God's word will not come back void, and it will serve his purpose. Again, Even handing out tracts is a way to evangelize. 
But we need to change the way that we think about success when it comes to evangelism. We need to change that thought process that we have. This is going to sound controversy, but wait till I get done with it and we'll find out. But success is not necessarily getting another person to accept Christ. Success is not necessarily as getting another person to accept Christ. How can you say that, Todd? Well, success must be seen as being a witness and a seed thrower. When it comes to the Word of God, pastors have been talking about throwing seeds for how long now? If we're not throwing seeds, we can't lead people to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. It says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Brandon planted, Jason watered, God gave the increase. What does that mean? That means that you tell somebody about Jesus Christ, Ronnie comes along and tells them about Jesus Christ, and he gets convicted about something. And then God gives the increase. God gives that conviction to where to drive the man, a man to his knees and say, Lord, I, I repent of my sins. I need you in my life. So if we're using that model of what a success is, how successful are we? Are we throwing the seeds? Are we just telling people about what we're doing on the weekend when it comes to church? If we're using that as what's successful. See, the story in, in Luke chapter 8 is the story of the, uh, the parable of the sower and the seeds. And we're not going to go into that, but if you remember that story from past teaching, it said the farmer was out throwing seeds. Some fell on hard ground. Some fell on thorny ground. Some fell on good ground. He was throwing them anyway, even though he knew that the seeds, all of them, weren't going to be productive. You think a farmer, when he's out sowing the seeds, that if they don't sprout, he just stops completely? No, he throws more. The more you throw, the better your chances of getting, getting your crops and getting people into heaven. The more seeds you throw... That's what it's all about. The seeds that we're supposed to throw are the word of God. The biggest seed that we throw is our action and our attitude. Because people don't want to hear a word I have to say if my walk is not what I claim it to be. I used this example before that if I am out on the golf course and me and Junior are out golfing, and yeah, Tiger who? No, nah, you got nothing. I talk up a humongous game about how great of a golfer I am. And as soon as I get on the first tee, I hit a ball that if it stayed up so far, it would come back around and smack me in the back of the head. All of my talking was for nothing because I could not back it up. What does that mean? That means if you're out there and you're telling somebody about the love of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you at work, and then all of a sudden your boss comes in and says your work, your last job you did, didn't, didn't pass the test and you need to do it over again and you start cussing him up and down, what did you just do to every word that you spoke 
to this guy. You showed him you're no different than anybody else. The love of God may come out of your mouth, but it sure doesn't live inside you if you're acting that way. Our actions will speak louder than any word that we could possibly say. So what do we do? How do we, how do we get in that mindset to, to evangelize the people? Well, we need to see people the way God sees them, with compassion. Matthew 9, verse 36 says, But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, And when Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. If we don't have compassion in our lives towards sinners, even towards the saints, how are we going to share the love of Christ with those people? Because if we don't have compassion, it means we don't care about them. We need to be an example for Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, is Paul speaking. It says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. When he said imitate me, it sounded a little, little uh, egotistical there. But when we followed up with the last part, just as I also imitate Christ. When we imitate Christ, that's when people will see us like, man, there's something different about that guy. When we imitate Christ, our actions are going to be more of a caring nature and a compassionate nature versus worrying about me. Listen to this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. It said, brothers, join in following my example. Hmm, his example. Who's that? That's Paul. And we just read in Corinthians, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So join in me, following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. You see, the best witnessing tool that we have is our day-to-day actions. Our testimony is the most powerful tool that we have in our, in our pouch because nobody can tell you you're wrong. There isn't one person out there that can tell me that God did not save me from the background I came from. Not one. Because I lived it. I know what the power of God has done in my life. When it comes to your testimony, use that as a door opener. Use that as a witnessing tool. If all of these other styles and and approaches that we talked about today don't work for you, use your testimony. Now, there's a song that's playing on the radio now, and and I believe it's Matthew West that sings it. And he talks about, he's watching the news, and he sees all the crime in the street and everything that's going wrong in the world. And he says, God, why don't you do something? You know the song? What, What does God say? I did. I created you. And I created you. If we're not doing something, then who will? The world doesn't want to hear about Jesus. They want to see Jesus. The world is cold to us because many times we don't take our faith serious and our actions show it. When the world sees genuine faith in action, they will listen. Let the community see our faith. Let us take the mission seriously. People in our community will die and go to hell without Jesus Christ. Jesus will give our lives meaning. Jesus will give our lives hope. But we need to share that hope that we have with somebody else. As we get ready to close, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. But 
when it comes to our witnessing and our salvation, it's great to talk about it in here on Sunday morning. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then how can you share that with somebody else? So these altars are open this morning. If you have a desire to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've never taken that step of faith to come up here, realize the need for a Savior, I'm going to ask that you would just come forward, let somebody pray with you. If you want to pray by yourself in your seat, that's phenomenal. But seek Him and His face. Seek His salvation. And if you've been convicted this morning about sharing your faith, knowing that we're not doing a great job of it, I would just ask that you would just take a moment to talk to God also, to get right with God and to get that off of your chest. Make a commitment to share your faith with somebody, even if it's putting a post on Facebook. Let somebody know about Jesus somewhere. Pray with me. Father, we just praise you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the, the topic of evangelism, Lord. We know that that uh, topic is something that we like to shy away from. But, Father, we ask that you would uh, put holy boldness in each person here this morning, Lord, to go out and share their faith. Lord, even if it's just passing out a track to somebody they pass on the street, Father, we ask that you would just uh, give the people that, that need to hear this word today the, the boldness to step forward and do your work. Father, we just give you praise this morning. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.